We're gonna learn a new chorus this morning. It's not exactly new. It's one that Deb and I used to sing way, way back in high school. And it's called In the Name of Jesus. And there's two reasons I'm gonna, we're gonna learn it. One of them is that uh, uh, you're, if you listen real close, you're gonna hear this song referenced later in the message. And the second reason, I just get tired of getting pushed around by the devil. I think sometimes we need to set our foot down and say he's not the one in charge. And this little song is one that we keep in our tool belt when we have prayer time together. And it feels like that the uh, enemy isn't budging much. We dig out this song and we pray and then we sing it. So uh, here it is, in the name of Jesus, it goes something like this. And if you wanna get Pentecostal and clap your hands, that's just fine. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we have the victory. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, demons will have to flee. When we go in the name of Jesus, tell me who can stand before us. In the name of Jesus, Jesus, we have the victory. Now you know what I'm saying. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we have the victory. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, demons will have to flee. When we go in the name of Jesus, tell me who can stand before us. In the name of Jesus, Jesus, we have the victory. We do. Amen. Now today, we're going to do a few little different things. I probably figured that out already, but uh, that's all right. I, I, uh, our message today is about the feast, and more specifically about the table. But before we talk about the table and the feast this morning, I'd like to introduce you to the kids that I grew up with. Would that be all right? Uh, we've got a picture up on the screen. Of, it was taken in about 1961. And uh, I'm just going to introduce you to my family, whether you want to know them or not. And uh, in this introduction, I've got a nickname for all my siblings, so I'm hoping this stays kind of in Pella, all right? <laughs> I don't want to hear from them later on today. Uh, in the back row and just to the right is my dad, Arthur DeBoof, born 1915 and passed away 2015. And to his right is Brother John. Uh, and his nickname is Mr. Notebook. Pity the poor, hapless sibling who was standing around with nothing to do because John always had a notebook in his pocket with a list of things that needed to be done on the farm. I, I don't know if he was self-appointed or if dad had deputized him, but he carried some weight, let me tell you. And whatever John said went. Um, he was dependable, decisive, and productive and efficient. Uh, he turned 79 a couple weeks ago, and I was over there a couple years ago to his place in watch here. He was clearing his driveway, the snow off his driveway. One scoop is not enough for John. Brother John had, uh, uh, well, a long time ago he did this. He welded a hook on one end and a loop on the other and hooked two shovels together, and he's just like a bulldozer. Back and forth, back and forth, cleaning his driveway. That's just the way he lived his life. Still lives it that way. Uh, he flipped over a zero-turn mower last two years ago, and for about two weeks or three weeks, he was just, oh, man, this isn't healing up. I don't know what's wrong. His wife says, you need to get to the doctor, and he goes to the doctor. He says, your back is broke, brother. <laughs> That's Brother John, all right? 
Uh, next to him is Brother Clarence. I call him the piano man. Talented, piano player, musician, experiential, inquisitive, questioner. What a lot of people don't know about Brother Clarence is he had a severe handicap when he was in grade school uh, that made him the butt of a lot of jokes, and he was bullied uh, intensely during grade school years, and uh, he would act out. And back then, when people act out, there was one thing you did. You spanked, and he probably had more whoopings <laughs> than all of the rest of us put together, poor Clarence. I don't think they did any good, but he got them. But something happened to Claire when he was 16. He had an encounter with Jesus, and the Lord changed his life forever. He went on to become a United Methodist minister for about 40 years, and when he retired, uh, he moved to West Des Moines and, and uh, started an Uber service. And if, I've, if my numbers are right, since he's retired, he's had 13,000 clients, and every one of them has heard about the love of Jesus. <laughs> every one of them. He's, he's led people to the Lord in his Uber car. He's prayed for healing in his Uber car. He's done it all in the Uber car, Brother Clarence, uh, the piano man. Next to him is Brother Dwayne, Mr. Innovator. Some of you might have known Dwayne when he worked at Vermeer. He didn't have a high school degree, but he had a lot of patents with the tub grinder. He could just figure anything out. He could build anything. In fact, the two funniest stories about Brother Dwayne one time, first of all, he was the strongest. He was as strong as an ox, the strongest one. He could bench press our whole family all at once. And... Uh, and one day he was supposed to get ready for a wedding and he realized he didn't have a suit and he didn't have any money for one. So he went to town, got some used material, bought a pattern and he sewed himself a suit on Friday night and wore it to the wedding on Saturday. And it wasn't half bad. Another, another time he had knocked his tooth out doing something and had about a half of the tooth left and we were having to booth panel pictures the next week. And his wife, wife says, you need to get that tooth fixed. And he said, I will, but he didn't. And uh, he was a body fender man. So on Friday night before the pictures, <laughs> you know where I'm going with this, don't you? <laughs> he went out to the garage or the shop and uh, got the, the putty and, or the uh, hardener and the, what do you call it? Bondo, thank you. I couldn't think of it. The bondo and the putty, and he formed a little tooth, stuck it up there, sanded it all down, and, and uh, mixed up some off-white paint and painted it, and, and it just looked perfect. <laughs> Lasted for five or six years. And... Dr. Dwayne, without a high school diploma, was a pretty good dentist, the innovator. Next to him is Brother Laverne, Mr. Cool, the peacemaker. Uh, a lot of you know Laverne from Pellicorp. He plays well with others. He got along good with people. He always looking for common ground. He was just a fun and easy guy to get to know and do life with. And then next to Brother Laverne was Brother Arvin, just the opposite, the challenger. He said, try telling me what I can't do and I'll, show, I'll prove you wrong. <laughs> I think if we used the Enneagram back then, we covered all nine of them with these nine kids. Next to our brother Arvin was Sister Rose, Miss Creative. She was a gifted musician, music arranger extraordinaire. At any given time, she has about 30 or 40 music students at the college where she teaches. She is an idea factory. <laughs> She's always thinking of new things, and she has an incredible insight into the Word of God. And then uh, my mom, Jeanette Rosenbaum, who passed away uh, three years, I think, after that picture was taken of cancer in 1964. And next to her was my sister, Lucille, who I nicknamed Miss Texas, because her heart is that big. 
Uh, Mama died when she was in eighth grade, and she stayed home her freshman year of school to take care of us kids. And there's a special bond that we'll have uh, forever for Sister Lucille, Miss Texas. And the last one up on the top there is my brother Harold, Mr. Gearhead, fast cars, powerful tractors, and get her done. That was Brother Harold. And then the guy, the kid on the lap, I'm going to call him the dreamer, the dreamer. Um, you see, in real life, a lot of you know what my job is around here. I go to a lot of hospitals. Um, I think in the three and a half years that I've been on staff here, I've probably officiated close to 80 or 90 funerals. Um, I, uh, it's not really an exciting life, if you think about it that way. In fact, my best friend in town puts makeup on dead people. <laughs> I was joking with him the other day. I said, I've taken more rides than a hearse than on a roller coaster. So, so I'm not really Mr. Excitement. My, my grandkids in Kansas wanted to, uh, wanted to make me a T-shirt one time. It says, WDN. And on the back it said, who died now? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Excitement, but in my dreams, let me tell you about my dreams. It's a totally different world. I'm a demon-chasing, soul-saving evangelist in my dreams. I've been, <laughs> I've been known to kick, uh, uh, kickbox with Jimmy Buffett. I don't know why, but Deb said I did. <laughs> she, she had the bruises to prove it. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> I've been known to take out an entire battalion of Arab soldiers in one fell swoop in my dreams. And uh, so I was going to tell you a little bit about one that I had about three weeks ago. And uh, I was, I was uh, here at the church, and you remember those fogging guns that the guys used to fog down, Lisa and the guys used to fog down our seats during COVID? Remember this thing? Yeah. Well, there were three bad dudes from hell that had gotten loose. And they were out in our parking lot, and they were using these things, and they were spraying down all the kids of our church with a black fog. This is kind of a weird dream, but hang with me, all right? And they were going around fogging all the kids, and when the kids would get fogged, they came under the influence of the enemy. They were demon-possessed. It's a scary old dream. And uh, they all ganged up on me, and they tied me. They strapped me, hog-tied me right to the floor. And I couldn't move, and I couldn't get up. And so uh, I'm going to have Deb tell what happened because she was there. So she's going to tell us a little bit what was going on next. <laughs> she might need a little coaxing. <laughs> well, first I want to say that my husband's brave. He handed me a mic. <laughs> so he does talk into sleep occasionally. And on a Saturday morning about two or three weeks ago at about 5.35 in the morning, this is a brief... Um, a brief encounter of what I experienced next to me. So it starts like this. And I did try to wake him up. I just want to tell you this, but it didn't work. <laughs> so I hear, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, I'm going to kick your butt. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus. We have the victim. <laughs> and then I thought, after a couple of karate chops and a few kicks, I'm like, I'm out of here. So I got up, but yes, my husband, Phil DeBooth, past preacher Phil, as we call him, is a dreamer. And yes, you can be assured, I'm free of demons now. <laughs> So 
So what happened next when I was singing and kicking their butt was I, ha I got a hold of one of these and I started spraying white spray and white fog over all these kids and they were all getting liberated and freed. And finally I got back to the three dudes, bad dudes from hell and I pointed the gun at them and I said, I'm going to kick your butt. Now, am I supposed to say that in church? <laughs> the reason I tell that story, <laughs> you're probably really wondering, First of all, I think there's a little bit of spiritual significance to it. I'm not sure. But like I said earlier, I'm tired of uh, letting the enemy push us around. I'll just leave it at that. But the second reason, I wanted you to see just for a little bit the diversity that was in our family. We had John on the one side, Mr. Dependable, Mr. Notebook, uh, Mr. Efficient, Mr. Productive. And then you had the dreamer on the other side that was, uh, we'll just wing it. <laughs> We'll just wing it. On one side, we have uh, uh, the piano man. On the other side, Mr. Gearhead. On one side, the peacemaker. On the other side, the challenger. And so you can imagine that at our house, there were some interesting times and interesting days. And um, it's, it's always kind of amazing how I think that out of two identical parents, the same parents could produce <laughs> these nine kids. Half of us. We're a lot like dad, very pragmatic, very disciplined, always get the job done. And then the other half of us were uh, wing it. And uh, we were like mom, we were more prone to discouragement, very creative, but more prone to discouragement and depression, more prone to sometimes breaking out in a song in the middle of a sermon. <laughs> it never happens here. <laughs> but there was something about when we came to the table that changed. We could be on the hot summer days out in the, out in the field or in the hay mow and, or in the cattle barn. We'd get into some scuffs and some fights. But when we came to the table, there was a miracle that took place because nine kids and two parents became one around a table. See, there's three, three miracles that happen around the table. One thing is that we experienced our father's provision. We knew that dad was going to take care of us and that there was always going to be food on the table and clothes on our backs. I don't know how he did it. Looking back, nine kids put us all through Christian school. Kept We didn't have the fanciest clothes in the world. We had a few hand-me-downs, yeah. But our plates were always full. And we never went away from the table without having everything that we needed. So the table we understood, dad's provision. Second thing is, around the table, we understood dad's affection. We could see it in his eyes that he loved us kids. Way back when we were little kids, all the way till he passed away at age 100, when we would get around the Thanksgiving table, he would start to cry with thanksgiving and with love for all of us kids. We didn't always make him proud. We didn't always make him happy but we always knew around the table we were loved. We were always able to, we knew we belonged there. We always knew that we could say our peace and people would listen. <laughs> I remember one time I was four years old. It was just after the JFK assassination and we were all sitting around the table having a political discussion. And we went around from the oldest to the youngest. Well, I'm a Democrat. Next one, I'm a Republican. 
I'm a Democrat. I'm a Republican. Came around to me, and I was sitting on the end of the table. I said, I'm a Christian. <laughs> I think my folks knew about that time. Maybe, maybe I'd be a preacher someday. I don't know. But around the table, we could say what was on our heart. Around the table, we belonged, and we were loved. The third thing we experienced around the table was our Father's heart. We understood where his passion was. We understood that his heart was for a harvest, both physically and spiritually. Be honest with you, for a lot of people that were looking in from the outside, watching our family, the case could be made that dad was a little bit of a slave driver. <laughs> uh, you don't keep nine kids busy without cracking the whip once in a while, right? Um, I can remember a lot of times in the fall of the year, if it was a wet season and harvest was upon us, uh, we would uh, get up early in the morning, have breakfast, we'd milk the cows, we'd go off to school. It'd be too muddy during the day to pick corn, so it's, uh, during school, Dad would take care of chores and things like that. When we got home from school, we'd milk the cows and, and uh, take a little cat nap, and at about 9 o'clock, when it got cold enough for the ground to freeze, we would go out and pick corn all night long, and we'd get up, when, or should I say, when the sun came up, we would milk the cows, we'd go back to school and take a nap <laughs> during school, and, uh, <laughs> and then come home, 4 o'clock, uh, milk the cows, have supper, take a little nap and do it all, all through the fall, because harvest was everything. Harvest was everything. And you know what? We were part of his mission. We were part of his heart. And that made it fun. We enjoyed every minute of it. We made a, we made a game. We made a competition <laughs> out of it, if you will. Because we were close enough to Dad's heart, we understood how much harvest meant. That meant everything to our family. We also learned around the table in later years that Dad cared about another harvest. As he got older, his heart was more and more tender toward uh, toward missions and toward people that didn't know about Jesus. And him and mom, they would go, they would never, we would never stop at a gas station on vacation, but what, they didn't get out the tracks, the Bible tracks, you remember that? And they would share the gospel with somebody. Uh, they went on missions trips to, to Mexico, to Canada, to the upper Northwest Territory, to Alaska. Uh, they went to China and smuggled Bibles in China. They were all about the mission. And it was at the table, we got close enough to dad and mom's heart that we understood all about that, the mission. I'd like to take you to another table now, and to do that, I'm going to read a text from Mark chapter 14. It's page 1007 in your Bible, if you wouldn't mind reading with me. We'll begin with verse 12 of chapter 14 of Mark. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparation for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. 
Say to the owner of the house, he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat that Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it has been written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. He gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. There's something about a table. And I'd like for us just to visually go back to that day, the Last Supper. And I have a picture by Leonardo da Vinci that will help us as we look at the 12 men who sat alongside Jesus. To Jesus' right at this, at our left at the end of the table, was Bartholomew also known as Nathaniel. About him, Jesus said, in this man there is no guile or deceit or falsity. He's the real deal. He was beaten to death for preaching the gospel in Armenia. Next to Nathaniel was James the Less, probably the brother, one of the brothers of Jesus, half-brothers of Jesus. He preached in Palestine and was crucified in Egypt after writing the epistle of James. Next to him, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He preached in Greece and Asia Minor and was martyred for his faith there. Next to him, the next head, not the next body, it's a little confusing, is Judas Iscariot. You'll notice him kind of in the shadow, clutching a bag of money. Whether it was because he was the treasurer of the group or perhaps he had just been to see the high priest and had 30 pieces of silver in that bag. Next to Judas was Simon Peter, the rock. But would you notice, it's a little hard to see, but in his hand is a knife ready to do battle against the high priest's son, Malchus. Next to him is John, a man of deep emotion, who's called the epistle of love, but also one of the sons of thunder. It was he who leaned hard against Jesus during the Last Supper, and it's why in his epistle he writes so much about the love of God and of our Savior. Then our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the center 
And to his left, Thomas, doubting Thomas, who, by the way, died as a martyr for his faith in India. Next to him is James the Great, one of the trio, Peter, James, and John, who was also called the son of thunder. Next to him, Philip, the questioner. When they were confronted with 5,000 people to feed, Philip says, where are we going to find food for all these people? Next to him is Matthew, the tax collector, an employee of the the hated Roman government. Next to Matthew is Jude Matthias, or Jude Thaddeus. He's not much known, but probably the author of the fascinating book of Jude, which closes with the doxology that we often say now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you without fault in his glorious presence with great joy. To him be glory throughout all ages. Amen. Jude, the epistle. And then on the end, Simon, the zealot, a radical right-wing politician who also followed Jesus. Do you see any diversity around the table? Think about it. Matthew, the tax collector, right here, collected taxes for the hated Romans, (laughs) and Simon Zelotes, the guy who wanted to overthrow the Romans. I was talking to Joel, um, can't think of his last name, dad's the basketball coach. You know, all know who I'm talking about. Nickel, thank you. Talking to Joel in the first service. And he said, I never thought about that before. He said, he said, Matthew probably had to sleep with his eyes open and a sword by his side, didn't he? It's probably the truth. I've jokingly referred to it as having Rush Limbaugh and Jesse Jackson both on the same team. <laughs> and they both followed Jesus. Simon Peter, the one who walked on water, over here. And Thomas, are you kidding me? I'm not going to believe until I see the hand, the prince in his hands and feel, thrust my hand into the side. Faith, doubt. And then Nathaniel, the quiet man with no, gall, with no guile. And then James and John, the sons of thunder who wanted to call down fire from heaven. By the way, I'm fascinated by these two guys. One minute they're calling fire down from heaven, and the next minute they're asking their mama to go talk to Jesus to see if they can get in a good place at the kingdom. (laughs) Quite a pair, huh? But at the table, they all came together. At the table, they experienced the Lord's provision. At the table, we experience our Lord's provision. As Jesus broke his bread, broke the bread and said, this is my body given for you. As often as you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. When we come to the table, We experience and we understand God's provision. You remember the story in the Old Testament of Abraham when he took his son Isaac to the top of Mount Moriah. And Isaac looked at his dad and he said, Dad, 
You've got fire and you've got wood, but where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide the sacrifice. Jesus said, "Uh, this is my body broken for you. Full provision for us. The second thing that happens at the table is we experience our Father's love and affection. After supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. Greater love has no man than this, and that a man lay down his life for his friends. When we come to the table, we experience our Father's love. And lastly, when we gather around the table, we're close enough to hear his heart beat. We understand and we experience the Father's heart. What is his heart, you might ask? Well, he, he says right in our text today, he said, you know what? I'm not going to eat this bread and drink this vine with you again until I drink it with you anew in the kingdom of heaven. Can we look at the next table? <laughs> this is one of my favorite pictures of all time. The Father's heart is to fill that table. The Father's heart is not for us to change the political systems of our world. Yes, we need to be good citizens, but the Father's heart is to fill that table. The Father's heart is for a harvest of souls. And when we get to the table and we see the bread broken for us, When we receive the cup, it says, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. It's then that we feel the Father's heart. I was thinking and praying about this this week, and the Holy Spirit asked me a very pointed question. And it was this, how long has it been since, Phil, your heart was broken with what breaks God's heart? Phil, how long has it been since your heart was broken for lost people? I can get worked up about a lot of things. You all know that. But at the end of the day, I want that table to be full. I want it to be filled with people that live next door to me. I've got a fellow that lives next house to mine, and I've never asked him where his heart was with Jesus. I've beat around the bush a lot of times, but I've never asked him. He's in Arizona this week. When he comes back, somebody's going to be talking to him. Because I want to be close enough at the table to know what God's heart is for my neighbor, for your neighbor. In Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17, which happened right before the Last Supper, It's amazing how many times he mentions in there his longing for us to be with him. 
And John 14, which was all at about the same time, Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. His longing is for us to sit at the table on that day uh, with him and, and, and to be close to his heart. So that's my appeal to us today as the praise team comes and prepares to lead us in the closing of the service, I have some action steps that I want us to take. I have one that's not even listed up there, but I think it's very important, and it's this. Can we make sure, can we secure our seat at that table? You say, well, we're all in church on Sunday morning, we're all believers, well, I'm not gonna assume anything. There might be someone in this room who has never said yes to the gift, the free gift of eternal life. And as the praise team sings about our Jesus' reckless love, our Father's reckless love for us, maybe this would be a great time for you to say, I receive. I'm going to accept the invitation to your table, Lord. And then the, the next action step we see up here in 11 days, we're going to gather around the table of the Lord in this room on Monday, Thursday. How can I prepare my heart for this sacred meal? Is there any stuff in there that needs to be left at the altar, at the cross? Can we ask God to purify our hearts in a new way so that when we gather at the table, we'll be able to feel his heart? We'll be able to hear his heartbeat? How can we prepare for this sacred meal? In my spirit, I believe that there can be a, a, a powerful encounter that we have on Monday, Thursday this year as we gather around the table of the Lord. And then the last action step, how can I begin to invite my neighbors to my kitchen dining table and ultimately to the banquet table in heaven? In the month of May, our church is gonna start a new initiative. We're gonna invi invite you and encourage you to start inviting neighbors to your kitchen table, to your dining table or to your grill out on the back deck because we want to begin to fill the heavenly table with souls, with people, with friends, with neighbors. So let's be thinking about how we can do that practically, all right? Those are the action steps for us. And now I want you just to stand together as we sing about the reckless love of our heavenly father. So as we lead you in this final song, we're going to invite our elders to come forward. And if you'd like to come and receive communion, come to the Lord's table. You're welcome to do that. And also we have prayer ministers in the corners. Maybe you need uh, prayer for healing. Maybe you need to say yes to Jesus or recommit. They would love to pray with you. So as we sing this final song, uh, we would invite you to respond as the Holy Spirit is leading us.